Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, June 24th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So news has come to a halt once again after we had the busy Friday I don't know when news, movie news is going to pick up. I think like all of Hollywood is on vacation. Maybe, maybe it'll happen next month with Comic Con. Uh, but we have put together a show of uh, news items for you today. Uh, the first of which is very interesting, and then we're going to talk about some comic book movies that almost happened, and we're going to follow that up with a kind of spoiler discussion of Toy Story Four and talking about is Toy Story Five a possibility. So, okay, let's start things off with the most interesting news item that we're going to talk about. And that is that they are making a Flash, or they're developing a Flash Gordon movie with Taika Waititi. Chris, what do we know? Uh, We don't know much. And part of this story aggravated me for how vague it was. So the original report said, quote, that Taika Waititi has come into, quote, crack an animated Flash Gordon movie. And... Uh, that's a fancy way of saying they don't really know what he's doing. Um, the report says he might write and direct it, but it also says that it's too early to say for sure. All we can say for sure is Disney slash Fox is developing an animated Flash Gordon movie and Taika Waititi is involved with it in some capacity. I don't know how he's going to fit this into his schedule because, you know, he, he's going to make Akira next, I believe. Um, so maybe this would come much later, but... We know that it's happening. And we had assumed another Thor movie. Like everybody, I mean, I, maybe that's a, like a bad assumption on our part, right? Uh, I mean, yeah, nothing's official there yet. But yeah, I, I don't know where this fits into his schedule. But it's that's the the story as of now. There's an animated Flash Gordon movie, and he's involved in it in some capacity. I, are you a fan of Flash Gordon? I really don't know much about 
the character. I've seen, you know, snippets of the 1980 movie, yeah. um, which I don't think is like the best representation of the character. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fan of Taika Waititi. So if he is involved with this, I, I'll be interested in it for his involvement. But beyond that, I, I can't say for sure. It definitely seems like a sci-fi property that I could see Taika giving his own comedic spin to. Do you know what I mean? Like it, and it's not like, I mean, I'm sure there are Flash Gordon fans out there, but it's not like there is a tightness of fandom that you have to stick to every little thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like there's a lot to play with Flash Gordon. Yeah, it's definitely a character. I mean, the character originated in, in 1934. So there, there's been a long history um, and there's definitely room to sort of like have fun with the character and goof around a bit, not take it too seriously. Ben, I feel like you might be a person who has watched some of those like early Flash Gordon short films. I've never seen any of those. I have seen the 1980 movie and I love the, the sort of uh, extreme campiness of it. I think it's a lot of fun as just this sort of, um, you know, sci-fi space adventure, like very uh, out there, super colorful, really bright. The idea of making this into an animated property is super interesting to me because I feel like you could do something along the lines of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse with this and even have like you know, bring in the queen, the iconic queen score and soundtrack from the original movie in some, in some capacity, especially with somebody like Taika involved, you know, like you're saying, not taking this too seriously and maybe having multiple flash Gordons run around. I mean, there, there are so many different possibilities for storylines that you could do in a space epic like this. I just love after the, after Disney acquired Fox, everybody was waiting for, you know, a Marvel Cinematic Universe X-Men movie. And the, the first thing that we hear about that they're developing is a Flash Gordon film uh, animated movie with Taika Waititi. So um, I think that's a good sign for what's to come. But may, who knows? Uh, okay, let's talk about a couple crazy comic book movies that almost happened. Let's start off first with Steven Seagal was almost Batman. Brad, what is going on here? Uh, yeah, so back when Warner Brothers was simply developing the first Batman movie that became Tim Burton's Batman in 1989 with Michael Keaton, uh, they were trying to figure out who should actually play Bruce Wayne and Batman. And uh, since we are recently celebrating the 30th anniversary of Batman, this past weekend actually was the exact anniversary on June 23rd uh, when Batman hit theaters back in 1989. Uh, screenwriter Sam Hamm talked to uh, Sci-Fi Wire and discussed uh, what was happening early on in development and that Warner Brothers was actually looking for an action star to play Batman, focusing more on the idea of Batman as this superhero who fights crime as opposed to the core of the character, which is meant to be Bruce Wayne, uh, you know, as Batman. You, you have to have a good Bruce Wayne in order to have a good Batman. And apparently one of the suggestions that Warner Brothers had was Steven Seagal. And that might seem laughable by today's standards since now he's this, you know, lawman who has his own reality TV show on A&E and makes awful, awful straight-to-DVD bargain bin action movies. But at the time Batman was being developed, he had kind of come out of nowhere, uh, was this um, really good martial artist, and he, uh, it apparently was like the next big thing for action at the time. And so there were, a lot of people had their eyes on Steven Seagal for these kind of projects, and uh, it never really went beyond being a consideration. Like they, they never brought him into read or anything like that. But imagining Batman with Steven Seagal is certainly uh, that's a choice. <laughs> I can't even imagine 
Steven Seagal as Batman or Bruce Wayne. Like, that doesn't even compute in my head. Chris, what would that movie have been? Uh, It would be amazing. No, I don't. (laughs) uh, I mean, you know, it's hard to separate the the Steven Seagal of today from the Steven Seagal of, you know, the 80s, which is when this was being developed. And it might have worked in the 80s. I mean, you know, he, he made a few movies where I don't think I would call him a good actor in them, but he was, you know, he was good for what the part demanded of him. And you know, uh, Batman doesn't have a lot of lines, so <laughs> he wouldn't have to like talk a, a lot. So it might have worked. I, I don't know. It, it's it is very strange to think about. So you're the problem poke is that the character, the, the person also has to play Bruce Wayne. So you know, like in the in the 1989 movie, Michael Keaton brought some charisma and you know charm and a little bit of comedy to that to that character. And Steven Seagal, I just feel like that's not there for him. What what if they took the take that? This is a Batman movie where you don't see Bruce Wayne. It's just Batman. Uh, uh, I mean, that, that's almost as absurd as Steven Seagal playing Batman. Yeah, maybe. To, I was just going to say they'd have to poke a hole in the back of the cowl for his ponytail to fit back there. <laughs> that would have been ridiculous. That would have been almost as ridiculous as that uh, Fantastic Four movie that was made uh, back in, what was that, the 80s or 90s? Oh, the I think it was the ninety four or something, 94. the Roger Corman one. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine it being better than that. But uh, okay, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about there was almost a Beast spinoff film. It was a script developed by X Men editor composer John Ottman. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so John Ottman is a guy who uh, composed and edited several X-Men movies. He did uh, X-Men 2, X-Men Days of Future Past, and X-Men Apocalypse. And while he was editing Apocalypse, his assistant, a guy named uh, Byron Burton, came to him with the idea of writing a movie about Beast, the character who's played by Nicholas Holt in these new movies. And uh, John Ottman sort of said, like, yeah, go for it. Write the script. You know, I don't, I don't really think this is ever going to happen, but sure, go for it. Write, it. write the script. And so he did, and he sort of pitched it to John Ottman. And after he read this draft, he thought that this is actually maybe good enough to work with a budget of about $90 million. And the story begins in the late 1980s in an Inuit village. The The script for this whole thing is available online, by the way, and we've linked to it in the show notes. If you want to read it, you can. But the basic gist of it is it begins in an Inuit village in the late 1980s where a creature is terrorizing the residents. And uh, the Hollywood Reporter has a, a sort of brief rundown of the gist of the story, which is about... Beast, a.k.a. Hank McCoy, who's living in the X-Mansion and keeping his mutation in check with a special serum that was introduced in Days of Future Past. There's a Danger Room sequence where Hank is having trouble controlling his nature and he he basically loses control. Uh, Hank has been helping a scientist who has a similar mutation and he gives this uh, serum out to him. But then things go wrong and he is Beast is trying to track this guy down and he realizes that this person that he was helping is the one who's been terrorizing this Inuit village all along. And there's this big showdown where Hank teams up with Wolverine, who Professor X has located using Cerebro. And the end of the film reveals a tag uh, that that shows that Mr. Sinister has been watching the proceedings the whole time. Of course he has. Yeah. uh, And Mr. Sinister, of course, actually appeared in 
the post-credits scene of X-Men Apocalypse. So it sounds like there were some big plans in the works maybe for um, for that character before, obviously, the Disney acquisition sort of put an end to all of this. Well, Mr. Sinister didn't appear in the credit scene, but there was a reference to the company that has... Right, right, yes, the, the Essex Corporation or something yeah. along those lines, yeah. So it sounds like this is kind of like a Wolfman-esque take on a Beast spinoff film. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sure if Nicholas Holt's Beast was interesting enough as a character to sustain a full movie, but uh, I guess Simon Kinberg, who is the, you know, the creative architect of a lot of these X-Men movies, basically just declined to read the script because he was still working on Dark Phoenix at the time and didn't want to be influenced by any of those ideas, and um, yeah, it just sounded like... He, he this didn't was want like... to be interrupted on the, the great movie he was in the process of making. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, yeah, it just sounded like this was like a sort of a what if scenario, but it never really got super far down the the development path. I mean, I do love the idea of, you know, doing comic book movies that are not just comic book movies. I, I know Marvel's kind of doing that with genres. I know we've talked about James Wan is doing The Trench, which is kind of a horror movie set in the the DC Aquaman world. Um, I I do want to talk about this. Also, there is a Spider-Man horror movie that almost happened in the 1980s. Chris, you wrote about this for the site a couple weeks back. What was this going to be? So um, it it sounds like based on what we know about this project that the powers that be, um, uh, it was actually Canon Films who were notorious for making – uh, B movies in the eighties and the the early nineties. Um, Which, by the way, all... if, if no one has seen, uh, what's that documentary called, Chris? Uh, about Canon Films. I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, I I, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it, but um... well, everybody, if if you have not seen that documentary and you don't know it's... about Canon Films, you should go find seek out this documentary. I'm sure it's on Netflix or something. It so... is. It's called Electric Boogaloo: The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. It's on yes. Netflix right now. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they at one point had the rights to Spider-Man, believe it or not. And apparently they just took a look at the title, which was Spider-Man and thought, all right, that's that's all we need to know. So <laughs> the, 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 the project they cooked up sounds a lot like David Cronenberg's um, The Fly remake in that uh, the main character, the, you know, the Peter Parker in this version, he ends up mutating into this giant eight armed spider human monster and he's so horrified at his you know mantra monstrousness that he you know wants to kill himself which is pretty much the the plot of the fly so it sounds like that's what they were going for here um toby hooper who directed the texas chainsaw massacre and depending on who you ask directed poltergeist uh was was uh, originally going to direct and you know uh, there, there's no telling on how close this came to be but Apparently, Stan Lee is the one who, you know, put the kibosh on this and he, he hated this script because it you know wasn't a superhero movie. So they did a rewrite. And when they rewrote it as a more traditional superhero movie, Toby Hooper left because he didn't wasn't interested in making that. And, you know, eventually the project never even happened at Canon in general. And then, as we all know, Sam Raimi eventually got a hold of it and he made it, which is kind of interesting because Sam Raimi was also a horror filmmaker, but he didn't try and make it a, uh, a horror film. Yeah. Stanley was our hero once again. So I'm wondering you guys, like which of these projects would you be into? Like if you could travel to a different multiverse and see one of these projects, would you be interested in seeing the Steven Seagal Batman 
the Beast spinoff uh, from John Ottman or the Toby Hooper Spider-Man horror movie. I mean, I would love the Toby Hooper Spider-Man movie. I mean, I have no interest in the Beast movie, maybe the Steven Seagal Batman movie. But if I had to pick one of these three, it would definitely be Toby Hooper's weird, depressing mutant Spider-Man. Yeah, same for me. Definitely Spider-Man out of these three. Brett? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm going for, too. That that just sounds so weird that I, I would just want to see it immediately. Oh, Peter, also, before we move on entirely, uh, I was misinformed about that canon movie. It's not on Netflix right now, but it's still out there, maybe on the disc plan or something, so people can track it down. But just, you know, to save the emails, yeah. it's not on Netflix right this second. I, I mean, I think I'm most curious about the Steven Seagal Batman movie, because that sounds... The most bonkers like I, I can imagine what the Spider-Man movie is as much as I'd like to see that. I can't imagine what Steven Seagal as Batman could possibly be like. I, I want to see that, uh, but we'll never will. OK, uh, let's talk about the box office this weekend. Uh, Toy Story 4 uh, was it was basically a juggernaut. Uh, Brad, how did it do? Well, it topped the box office, and uh, but I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a juggernaut. It did easily win the weekend with yeah. 118 million. However, uh, it also underperformed from the expectations that the studio had for its uh, total this weekend. Because going into the weekend, they were expecting it to make uh, around 140 million, if not a little bit more. So that's a pretty significant amount less than what they were expecting. And wait, I, I wait, feel so like how much did it make? It made 118 million. Oh, 118. Wow. Yeah, so it's um, it's a little it's not a disappointment because obviously this movie is going to be very successful. It's you know the global um, box office was also good and uh, there's not a ton of competition that, that this movie is going to have among families with the exception of Spider-Man: Far From Home until Disney faces themselves with The Lion King in you know toward the end of July. So the movie will still do very well. Kids are still out of summer, but it does seem like this kind of continues this idea that, that audiences are kind of sick of reboots sequels um remakes whatnot uh especially this summer because it's there's there's been a constant stream of disappointing movies at the box office and a lot of people thought that toy story 4 would kind of come in and save the day but the fact that this movie is still underperformed a little bit kind of shows that this doesn't really seem to be going anywhere this summer um and if you need any more evidence of that the reboot of child's play also didn't uh, do very well it opened at number two but it only uh, raked in $14 million, and that was a little bit below expectations as well since the studio was looking at around a 16 to $18 million opening weekend. Okay, so $118 million, I'm sure with the – like you said, there's not much competition. So we'll probably see like maybe a three times multiple of that. So we're at like what, $350 or $60 million, right? Probably. Um, so that puts it between – that puts it number two with only Toy Story 3 above it. So I, I don't think that's a failure. No, it's not, I, I, a lot yeah. of people are saying that it's a disappointment and a failure. I don't think that it's that by any means. It's uh, this, this. It was also the biggest opening weekend for the franchise. Granted, that's not adjusted for inflation, um, but it's this is still you know a success for, for Disney and Pixar, no, no matter which way you slice it. Um, you know, it's, you, you can argue the, the concept of audience fatigue when it comes to, you know, franchises just being thrust upon them all throughout summer. Um, but if anything, I think maybe one of the things to blame is just that 
like a lot of us, we were all skeptical of whether or not we really needed Toy Story. And maybe there's a lot of people who are waiting to see what people thought after the first weekend and, and waiting on word of mouth to see whether or not it's something that they should go out of their way to check out or not. Yeah, I think that's probably it. I think, like, even us who had seen it. Chris, you still haven't seen this movie, right? No, I have not. I'll get around to it sooner or later. I just did not have a chance to see it. Okay, I want to have a discussion about if there could be a Toy Story 5 and what that could be and stuff like that. So, Chris, we're going to leave you here, but uh, thanks for joining us. Sure. Okay, so if you have not seen Toy Story 4, um, I guess probably turn off this podcast now because we're going to be discussing some heavy spoilers of what happens in that movie and how that movie ends. So uh, if you want to join in on the spoiler discussion, you're welcome to, but you have been warned. There are spoilers coming up. Okay, so... uh, Jacob had an interview with Josh Cooley, the director of the film, and the two producers, and the subject came up of making more Toy Story movies. Uh, Ben, what did they say? Yeah, so during Jacob's interview, he mentioned that with the way that this new movie concludes, he would be perfectly happy if Pixar decided to basically leave the franchise where it is. And he wondered if conversations about... Toy Story 5 had taken place yet because obviously Pixar is a, a movie studio that develops stuff years in advance and takes a long time for their projects to to sort of come to fruition. So he was wondering he was wondering if any of those early conversations had happened yet. And Josh Cooley, the director, said it has not happened, and I 100% agree with you. I would be totally happy if this was the end. Uh, Mark Nielsen, who's a producer, said we've been totally focused on four, so we haven't really thought beyond that. I mean, we never knew we never know what the future holds. We didn't think there was going to be a four. We didn't think there was going to be a three after we finished two. And Jonas Rivera, who's one of the other producers, said, we felt like Woody needed to have a completion to his arc, and we've done that. We feel satisfied with it. So, you know, as as Nielsen mentioned there, we never know what the future holds. That always leaves the door open for possibilities. But it sounds like this whole thing was just to really complete Woody's arc as a character. And it, it sounds like they are happy that they've accomplished that goal. But uh, I don't know, Peter, uh, Brad, what do you guys think? Are, are you, would you be interested in seeing a Toy Story 5? Well, let, let's talk about the ending of this movie. Um, so this movie ends with Woody deciding to leave the toys and to go off on his own adventure with the lost toys and join Bo Peep, who he has... I guess an alluded to romantic relationship, although it's not really. The, is it a romantic relationship? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah for, sure, for sure. Yeah, they've always been flirtatious with each other and that kind of thing, especially in the first one. So Woody runs off with the girl, uh, with the lost toys, and the the toys go back to Bonnie. Um, it is. I mean, I do agree with Josh that this is a closure for Woody's story. But I guess the question here, is this a closure for uh, Buzz's story? Is this – they've also set up all these interesting characters like Forky and uh, Duke Kaboom, which I'm sure people might want to see more of those people. So I'm wondering, like, is there there a reason to have a Toy Story 5? Ben, what do you think? Um, I don't know. I was wondering about this. I was talking. So I went to see Toy Story 4 with my wife, who's the biggest Toy Story fan that I know. And I, you know, as soon as we walked out of the theater, I was like asking her, I was like, they're definitely done now. Right. Like this story is over. And she sort of, you know, on the fly off the top of her head, just pitched a Toy Story 5 to me that I want to uh, steal and then repurpose for this conversation. Um, and I was I was developing this with, a, with her a little bit further today, right before we started recording. But basically, she said that because Woody and Bo Peep and, and those characters are part of a traveling carnival, 
they could circle back around and meet up with Buzz and the rest of Bonnie's toys in some sort of future instance later. So we were talking about like what a story could possibly be. And she came up with this idea that like the Buzz Lightyear toys, all of them across the country are being recalled. So like what if uh, Woody and Bo Peep see on TV an announcement that all of the Buzz toys are being recalled and they try to save Buzz. They, you know, they are part of this carnival. So when it gets back around to whatever town they live in, Woody and Bo and, and uh, Duke Kaboom and those characters head back to find Buzz. But maybe when they show up at Bonnie's house, like the house is abandoned and they have to piece together clues to track down Buzz or something. So that, that was, you know, an idea that uh, I thought m- might be able to sort of what you're talking about, Peter, get, put the focus back on Buzz a little bit and maybe give him some sort of uh, completion, have like a, a split story where they're trying to track him down and maybe you follow a Buzz and the other characters and, and track his growth and arc along the way. Yeah, um, but I feel like, I, 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 and I think, didn't they have the idea of like the Buzz recall thing that was like one of the original ideas for Toy Story 2, I think? Oh, was it? I didn't know I that. Think That's so. cool. I think so. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, there was, there was, I don't, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it was Buzz that where there was some kind of recall and like he ended up going to Japan or something because of it. Wasn't that what the story was? Which, by the way, that, that could be amazing. It probably wasn't going to be amazing, but it could be amazing. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I do like that pitch. I think that would be a good movie, but I'm, I'm just wondering is, that mystery plot of saving Buzz and finding, you know, that whole search, is that enough reason to do another one? Like, that that to me, as much as that sounds like it could be a good film, sounds like it's another episode, you know, like, we need to make another sequel. Like, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, is there a reason beyond that? Like, th- th- yeah, it would it- have to be whoever is directing this would have to actually inject some some pathos and, like, thematic resonance to it, right? Because that's the that's the magic of these Toy Story movies in particular is that, yeah, their surface plots are really good, but, like, what they're actually saying about the world and these characters is the stuff that really gives the film its heart. So you would have to get somebody who is paid a lot more than the nothing that my wife and I were when we came up with this concept <laughs> to be able to do that. And just, just to confirm, the, the original plot for Toy Story 3 uh, was that Buzz was getting recalled and needed to be shipped off to his manufacturing company in Taiwan to fix a malfunction, and the rest of the toys launched a rescue mission to try to save him. That is pretty cool. Uh, the other thing that occurs to me is, like, I know Pixar, you know, is decades old at this point, and uh, you have this plot with Woody, and also, like, in Cars 3, you also have this other plot with Lightning McQueen, where these characters are starting to question what their purpose and their role in life is. And maybe, you know, they're past the, um, they're reaching middle age, right? And they're trying to discover like, you know, maybe my purpose in life isn't this, maybe it's something else. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, is, is that because of all these creative people at Pixar are reaching that age? What do, what do you guys yeah. think? No, I think that's totally fair to say. And like, um, and I think that fits right along with the audience, too, because one of the things that I have kind of loved about this franchise is how it has grown with both uh, kids who were young enough to see the original movie in theaters in 1995, um, that they were they were very young. And now that they've grown up, the franchise has kind of grown with with them. But also the parents of those kids who, you know, had younger kids in 1995 who have seen their kids grow up and go off to college and become adults and start having their own kids. 
And as the stories have progressed, the movies have kind of addressed the, the kind of hardships that you deal with, whether you're the parents of those kids or the kids, you know, growing up. And I think this one perfectly uh, represents that, you know, how do you live your life when you aren't, you know, taking care of the person that you have you've been taking care of your whole life? You know, what, what do you do next? What's the, that next chapter of your life look like? What um, what would be your pitch if they were going to make a Toy Story 5? Uh, Brad, like I, I know, like, or actually, do you even think they should make a Toy Story 5? I will say that I don't think that they should make a Toy Story 5, only because I feel like even though Buzz Lightyear has been a very important character in the Toy Story franchise and the other supporting characters are great fun, uh, I, the, fr- the franchise to me has always belonged to Woody. The first movie is about him feeling uh, lo- um, forgotten and obsolete when Buzz Lightyear comes in. The second one is about him seeing that there are other toys who are just like him and that maybe he shouldn't be just someone's plaything. The third one is about uh, growing up and kind of letting go of the person you spent your your whole life with and seeing what's next on the horizon. And this fourth one is about starting the next chapter of your life and realizing that maybe you don't have to just simply live your life for somebody else. And so I, I feel like Buzz has been an integral part of Woody's life, but he's really never been a... a like the the one uh, the lead character to me and so while you could do a toy story 5 where buzz maybe struggles with being the new you know de facto leader of the toys um and that kind of thing i feel like you're going to start treading familiar territory but at the same time if you wait you know uh 10 years 15 years something like that there could be an interesting kind of uh sort of reboot where maybe buzz lightyear suddenly has to deal with the same thing Woody did where they've come out with a new like 25th anniversary edition of Buzz Lightyear who is way more advanced and has so many cool new gadgets and uh, a lot more lines to say and like actually interacts with the kids like uh, in the same way that toys have advanced you know for uh, for kids today Um, but then like I said again you start to tread familiar territory as you did with the first Toy Story um yeah, do you think they could do another Toy Story movie where it just follows Buzz and those toys and Woody isn't even a part of it? I, I they could, sure. Like, I mean, anything is possible. Um, and if a, a, after being a naysayer of Toy Story 4 and seeing what <laughs> Pixar pulled off, I, I will never doubt them again. And if they think a story is good enough to do, then I will trust them and I will see it. But at the same time, this they can only do, like, have, have such a, a story that has this amount of finality and emotion to it so many times before it's just like, come on guys, like what are, what are yeah. we doing here? Um, so on a, on a, maybe a, a more twisted and unlikely note, uh, maybe it would be interesting to see the toys living in su- the desolate uh, post-apocalyptic waste- wasteland that we see in Wally since there aren't any humans around and the toys don't have anything to do. <laughs> I think that's too dark for Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> just a little um i mean I, I feel like years from now people are going to be pining for a reunion of buzz and woody although i can't really think of a good reason other than maybe what yeah, amy came up with um wait here we go here it is so this this will make it less darker than than, <laughs> than the post-apocalyptic version it'll still cross over with wally but the toys are now on the ship with all the humans oh, that left no. earth and you find out that they were somehow part of the uh, helping the ship to get back to Earth while Wally and Eve were doing their thing too. Boom! They're, the toys are all so brutally you're making... murdered, and they they show up in the land of the dead from Coco. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Woody, a Pixar story. Right here, guys. <laughs> I don't know. The, the other thing I'm thinking about is like, and maybe I'm maybe I'm getting pulled outside the main characters, which are the toys. But if I'm thinking about Andy, like Andy has gone away, he's given up the toys. But I feel like one day Andy is gonna want, like, as any kid who grows up and gives away his toys, he like you have a nostalgia and you want to reconnect with your childhood like maybe there's something there but i mean i I guess i'm looking at the motives from the outside source and not the inside yeah what would i guess what would the toys do in that scenario like what would what would their story be yeah i don't know that's a good question i'm wondering if anybody out there who has seen seen this film has any good pitches for toy story 5 please send it to us Peter at SlashFilm.com, and maybe we'll read it on a future episode. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find the links to the stories we talked about on today's show in the show notes. Uh, this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>